KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Lava. This is the Henry George Program, show about land, policy, and politics. Today the program, we have back on Daryl Owens. You know the drill. It is 2022. We're mostly done with our legislative session in Sacramento. And he is here to talk about what is going on, what is still to be decided, and a lot more. So without further ado, yeah, let's uh, just get on it. So, Daryl, thanks, uh, thanks for coming back on to talk about one more year of, uh, of Sacramento politics. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we've been doing this for the last, last couple of years, just like one nice big rundown. I, I don't listen to other shows where they talk about, you know, the horse racing in Sacramento all the time, uh, but this is probably like less about maybe the political end from the outside and more about kind of the discourse and maybe some of the palace intrigue. I think uh, this is the what is this like the third time I've been on and the first time was 2019 or was it 2018? I think you might more than that, but uh, you can now you can click on your name on my, on my website and see how many times you've been on. Uh, but okay. uh, yeah, so this is it. We're recording this in that uh, extremely important window uh, where things are signed uh, or sorry, where things are waiting to be signed by the governor that have passed uh, Sacramento. In particular, two very exciting bills. Uh, if, you, if you told me, what do I care about when this year started, uh, AB 2097 would have been top of my list, uh, and also AB 2011. But uh, what's, what's your general thoughts about like what you came coming into this year and how excited, like how, how are these bills in the big scheme of things? Um, I think that this is probably the most monumental upzoning in recent California history. And I want to say that it is like miles above what was accomplished last year. And I'm not saying that to be a booster for California EMB. Um, I'm saying that because it is like it, it is objectively uh, a huge win for a pro EMB, pro housing agenda. And more importantly, the political ramifications in terms of how this bill was passed um, is a huge win for us as well. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I guess we can start with AB 2011 because that's yeah. the big one. I'll say, yeah. I'll say on the, on the record, uh, last year, I wasn't, I mean, I, w- I was skeptical SB9 would, would do that much out of the gate and it hasn't. So I'll continue to be, yeah. so I feel, I feel, I feel validated. Say, so give me more. <laughs> this was not that exciting. Uh, yeah. So the two bills, AB 2097 is the parking minimum bill. AB 2011, uh, is the, uh, bill, uh, about commercial upzoning. So, uh, this is yeah. I mean, so essentially, if this mean does this mean like everywhere could be residential? Like, as industrial doesn't count. It's only commercial. Like, it's offices and retail. Yeah. Uh, so the the basically the way AB twenty eleven works is um, if it, it has two provisions. So one for one hundred percent subsidized low income housing, and another for like market housing. Um, the subsidized low income housing provision is essentially if your parcel is zoned for commercial primarily zoned for so it can include other uses but it has to be primarily zoned for commercial retail or parking then you can build 100% subsidized housing on top of it however if it's a market rate project then it only applies to uh, parcels in which it is commercially zoned also, oh, okay. there's a requirement that it, the street widths have to be greater than 75 feet or sorry, 70 or 75 feet. I can't remember which. Actually, I have it right here. So so, so people might skeptically say, is this pushing everything to like arteries? To, But I guess that's I mean, that's where the strip malls are right now and everything. I mean, a lot of people are saying this is going to be about strip malls. I, I don't know if that's fair to say. Greater than 70 feet. Yeah. No, yeah. it's not fair to say. It's not well, fair to say. Um, okay. So, so 70 feet roads are pretty damn small. Like most roads are not 70 feet. They're like 80 and up. 
So, mm. and I think a lot of people misunderstood what the bill text initially said, because it seems like a lot of people realized how big of a deal this was only after it passed. It the, the framing of the bill was commercial corridors, but what it really means is just any street that has a zoning that says it has commercial use. Not, it doesn't have to be like the big strip malls. It will be the big strip malls because those are the big commercial corridors in those areas. But like, for example, where I live, there's like pockets of corner stores and small businesses um, and like commercial use throughout the neighborhoods. And they're all zoned commercial. They're also all on streets that are bigger than um, 70 feet. Cause 70 feet are very small streets. Yeah, we don't, live in, talk- we don't live in Japan. Like we don't have yeah. tiny streets with a bunch of like, you know, shops on them. <laughs> 70 feet like i'm i i like you can and and by the way i think when a lot of people hear 70 feet or any kind of width of a street they think it's from the curb to the curb no it's from property line to property line so yeah okay so so that's how street widths are calculated i I mean in terms of the right-of-ways and everything a lot of people heard that it only applies to highways but the problem is is that in the california vehicle code a highway is literally every street that's not a freeway um so that was just a technical term um but like the analysis i did on my local city here in berkeley almost every commercial corridor would be affected so uh, but as far as what you would expect to happen do you think that the most likely candidates would be strip malls or what what do you like if you had a if you had a guess i actually don't think so i mean the bill is mainly designed to deal with Southern California because Southern California is where you have zoning for things like parking. Like I don't have any parking zoning in my city, um, but like it's mainly designed to deal with Southern California. I think that what you're going to see is a lot of like one story strip malls um, and not even like strip mall, strip malls, like just commercial uses um, replaced with um, with uh, multifamily housing. I think that's Mm. very likely. And the reason why I think that it's much more likely than, say, SB9, because a lot of people, like you said earlier, well, SB9 passed and it it hasn't really done much. Um, I don't think it's totally fair to say because SB9, you know, hasn't it's only been one year and it's a very complicated law. Um, But SB9 was only limited to like a duplex. It was two duplexes. It had this owner requirement to satisfy the realtors. um, And then it was like basically the pro Tems law, you know, negotiated with a bunch of suburban groups and it eventually became a very cumbersome law that probably isn't preferable to an adu but like it doesn't it'll get some use but it'll take some time for people to get comfortable using that law i think the big thing here is that ab 2011 and this is a provision i forgot to mention earlier most importantly includes streamlining and so anything that is proposed that is zoning compliant with AB 2011 um, basically gets approved within a couple months. It doesn't have to go to a council approval. It doesn't have to get a lower commission approval. All it has to do is be signed off by the planning department and then it's A-OK to be built. Um, and I actually think that we didn't finish the AB 2011 provision. So let me just explain it just a little bit more. Um, it's not just that the, so the, the baseline has to be that the street has to be greater than 70 feet, which is most streets in California. So that's not going to be a problem. And the, of course, the zoning has to be used for commercial. Now, in terms of density, what the bill requires is that if the street is less than a hundred feet in width, which most streets are, you can go up to about three stories at, uh, I believe 30 units per acre. Um, if the street is greater than 100 feet, you can go up to four stories at 50 homes per acre. Hmm. And in urban areas, if the population of your city is greater than 100,000 and it's located within a half mile of a uh, major transit stop, 
then it can go up to six stories at 70 homes per acre. And none of this forecludes, um, sorry, not forecludes, precludes the d- density bonus. Yeah. And of course, the requirement is that market rate housing has to have 15% affordable, or if the locality has a higher percentage, then it opts for that as well. So, so stupid question. Uh, is this is this only building residential or is it mixed use? You can build it. So, so like you could, like if you're getting rid of a retail, you could build retail and then housing on top of it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that seems, yeah, it seems like that gives a lot of flexibility to do stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it passed 33 to nothing, which is for something, it seems so dramatic. That's like in the Senate, that's a pretty crazy uh, outcome. Uh, I suppose like really, it seems that a lot of this had to do with, you know, kind of doing, uh, basically getting the big power block behind the scenes, which is to say, you know, labor getting behind it. And eventually the carpenters got very happy with railing wages with some training. And then it's like, well, when you got that muscle behind it, it just sailed through. That's, I mean, that's, that's good to see that people can kind of come and, you know, (laughs) come to an agreement. I mean, the big headline besides the mass subzoning is the fact that the labor Yimby Hauser coalition uh, provides a very clear pathway forward for future laws. And we yeah. saw an inkling of this with AB 2053, but we saw it at full power with AB 2011. Um, and that is a really fantastic thing. It was an interesting battle between labor. So the carpenter, it wasn't just the carpenters. It was the carpenters. It was the public workers union. Um, and it was the school workers union. They were the big three uh, that came out and really went hard for AB 2011. And I don't just, and so there's a, key point to understand here there's a big difference between saying i support a law and putting your like name as a supporter of something but you don't actually mobilize people to go out and do something for it sure. that doesn't i'm not saying that doesn't account for nothing but it doesn't matter that much um not nearly as much as like what labor ended up doing for the uh ab 2011 which was like protesting for it holding rallies for it um bombarding um senators and assembly members to pass the law that's a big difference yeah when labor, uh, also, when labor shows its muscle like it's incredibly yeah. powerful yeah and so labor you know labor has oftentimes including the state building trades which is the construction workers union has oftentimes endorsed cmb laws but like the the the, the to the extent that what we saw labor do this time around was tremendous but of course this all came after but it was this happened during and 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 before and after but one of the big headlines here was that the state building trades kind of went to war against the law for a short period of time and there was this debate between the building trades and the carpenters union the building trades has supported yimby laws in the past but they've made very clear that they essentially don't want any more prevailing wage requirements that they just want skilled and trained workforce which essentially means union labor prevailing wage basically pays at union labor wages and in urban areas that will almost always result in a union uh contractor but you know the 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 building trades was like that's not good enough anymore we want 100 percent union on all the new housing bills and the problem there was that there's just not enough unionized construction workers in the state to build anywhere close to the amount of housing needed for the state yeah. uh, in part because of the recession that like really made union jobs um smaller and smaller and and people just dropped out of the construction worker workforce so the carpenters sees it as like, well, the reason why people dropped out of the construction workforce and subsequently dropped out of unionized labor is because we didn't have enough construction projects. I mean, construction basically went to zero during the recession and took up, you know, 10 years to recover. 
So from their perspective, it's like, well, if we support more housing construction with prevailing wage requirements, that will translate into more union jobs. But the building trades was like, we don't want like possible translations. We want just contracted union jobs. And the problem there too, is that like, if you put that onto every construction project that works in big cities because big cities always have or more often than not have unionized construction workforce when they're building like multifamily apartment buildings but like a lot of the small contractors out in the suburbs are not unionized so you know that 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 presented a very interesting problem and so the building trades can make or break housing laws yeah uh, it doesn't matter how you know even with the carpenters even with SEIU and even with the teacher uh, with the school workers it doesn't really it does matter, but it was going to be tremendously harder if the building trades was attacking AB 2011, because we know what they, how powerful they can get when they attack MB laws. And so what ended up happening was a negotiated compromise to where the building trades decided to withdraw uh, attacks against AB 2011 and instead decided to support another law called Senate Bill 6, which was kind of presented as the uh, alternative from the Senate's version to AB 2011, a much weaker version of AB 2011 that doesn't really upzone anything. It simply just allows residential use under current local zoning rules on um, height and parking to be used, uh, but and it doesn't require any low-income housing, but it has a requirement for all union labor. That was added. And so okay. the building trade said, okay, so we're not going to oppose AB 2011. We're going to just support SB6. And so the carpenter said, okay, well, we're not going to oppose SB6. We're going to just support AB 2011. And the grand compromise between the legislator was we're just going to pass both these bills and then builders can choose if they want to do AB 2011 or, a or SB6. They're obviously all going to do AB 2011, but still, you know, that it was a choice. And that's like, and it was actually a pretty monumental thing. Yeah. Is, is SB6 on Gavin's desk also right now? Yes. There, I'm, okay. There's no way Gavin is going to uh, not pass both. And so, I mean, I don't know. With this there, kind there of are muscle, advantages I mean, to SB6. Yeah. There, there are advantages to SB6. I shouldn't say that it's a given that people will choose AB2011. It depends on how uh, prohibitive the density and local rule requirements for um, new development is. So like, especially in a lot of exclusionary jurisdictions, I imagine AB 2011 will be used, but in areas where like, you're talking about like suburban Los Angeles, maybe um, we got like big strip malls that have by definition, just a lot of space allocated for um, uh, retail and stuff. If you just convert that to, to, to residential use, then you can see SB6 being used. And especially because there's no low-income housing requirements, the projects will probably pencil out a lot better. So there is a there is kind of a choice between the two. That's interesting. You said earlier about like kind of like in like you know skilled and trained in cities right now isn't an issue, but it's worth saying like this is at the level of construction we're seeing now, which is, you know, we want to see or we expect to see like a huge change and to see much 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 more building. And how are we going to, you know, how what are we going to see for that to happen? I think, I think like for people to say we should aim for skilled and trained with a much larger workforce. I think that's the right goal to have to have complete coverage. But like, I, I like it, it does seem like it's very easy for people to get in a trap of being short term. Say we need skilled and trained every step along the way. But if you don't, if you can't increase your unionized workforce fast enough, like that just means you're not building enough. I, I don't know. Like it seems. Yeah. 
like, like we obviously need more apprenticeships programs and things to get more unionized workers um but like you can't force grandma down the street in fresno where there may not be any unionized workers or bakersfield or anywhere in the central valley to go turn her duplex to, to go build a duplex with a union workforce and so even sb6 has a provision which is like you can try for like one or two bids to get union workforce if you can't then you can go off and do something else but like mm. Yeah, because like it's just not realistic. Um, but that's kind of that's 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 sort of been the big debate. Like, really, this isn't really between Yimbies and uh, the the building trades. This is more so between the building trades and low income housing developers. So, so this has been a, a long fight for quite some time. But like, low income housing nonprofits have always argued that like we have a social goal of building lots of subsidized housing, and because the union workforce is so small out of the big cities, it's not economical for us to only use unionized labor. And the building trades has always been like, you guys are just you know dodging unions you're just hurting unions we don't care well not that we don't care but like it doesn't matter that you're low-income housing developers that you shouldn't be exempt from union practices and so especially in the previous legislative seasons the low-income housing builders have always fought the the building trades when yeah. it came to these new construction projects but it is good to see that like the trades and the carpenters are all working together and that this actually presents a pretty good path going forward yeah, it and sounds we, pretty sounds constructive compared to like just butting heads and not getting anywhere. So what were we gonna say though? Yeah. I was gonna say that this is kind of what we saw the inklings of with um AB twenty fifty three, which was yep. the late public housing bill. Yeah, before we get into that, I mean like it's worth saying you say this is you say Gavin is going to pass this, no problem. I mean, you look at like the blocks, I mean laborers behind, that's a huge block. The fact there's no real organized opposition uh, in the legislature, but like there is opposition out there, you know, I consent, oh, I consent, I don't. And the, the big, the big people who don't are really the quote unquote equity nonprofits, you know, kind of well, as usual. It's a mix between as usual, the suburban NIMBY homeowners like livable California and the, and, and not even all of the equity nonprofits, like half of them. Yeah. Um, this was a really <laughs> real interesting difference. Right. Well, yeah, but this is what was really fascinating. In the previous housing battles, the equity nonprofits that represent the like housing justice organizers always stick together usually and have the same line, which is that they never want any market rate housing built. That's been the case since SB 50. But what we've seen over time is especially lately, not all of them are willing to go on board with that sort of diehard ideology. And when Western Center, of course, came out and attacked AB 2011, it was really what was more informative about that coalition was who wasn't on that coalition. Because Ace, who was example, was Western Western Center, uh, public yeah, advocates, Meta, you know. But yeah, you said yeah. but you said Ace, so, so, Ace dropped so out. So all the all the all the big nonprofit lawyers, so you know, public advocates, uh, Western Center, and then like lower local groups like um, Los Angeles, uh, same types, uh, like the Berkeley Tennis Union and the two people who run it were like part of it. Yeah, whatever. But what was fascinating was who wasn't on it. Um, ACE wasn't on it. And ACE is the big tenant organization group um, and the legislator. ACT LA wasn't on it. And ACT LA is the group that led the opposition to SB 50. I mean, that was big. And why weren't they on it? I think they knew as well as everybody else did that like taking this staunch oppositional approach to every production bill would just ruin any possibility of a coalition and getting any tenant laws passed. And the reason why this is the case is because we had the three piece coalition, 
The Three Piece Coalition came out of the death of SB50. It was a pretty humiliating death for Yimbies in many respects. And the, the whole narrative from SB50 was Yimbies have to work with the tenant groups in order to get anything passed. That wasn't entirely true. That was just a lot of journalistic populism per se um but wasn't wasn't like, it 827 was kind of go it alone and then 827 died then the casa compact kind of created the three p's to kind of have a whole new all like a, yeah. a whole suite of bills which is sp50 and 1482 and yeah. 330 and so what ended up happening is the 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 whole narrative and the the policy from three p's was yimbies have to go to bat for housing justice organizers when they want to do things on rent control and eviction protections and in exchange like they will be amenable to land use laws but what ended up happening was that yimbies did go to bat for 1482 which was the statewide rent stabilization law uh inflation plus five percent and it, it didn't start off that way but it got you know whittled down to become a lot more lenient on landlords so a lot of the housing justice organizers didn't like the law ultimately although they all still went to bat for it at the at, you know, till the law passed. And from then on, even though Yimby supported that law and Yimby's did other tenant protections too, like SB 330, um, there was just like no reciprocation in terms of support. Uh, the, the, the nonprofit groups all basically tried to like negotiate on tenant on Yimby laws in terms of increasing the affordable housing requirement beyond what was even common in the most, um, progressive cities like san francisco to a level which was like reasonably unfeasible for any developer to build they wanted all these exemptions and when they didn't get the entirety of that they got a lot of it but they didn't get the entirety of it uh, then they all just opposed sb50 anyways and so that sort of led to the death of the three piece coalition because the housing justice groups would never support an upzoning bill they never supported a yimby bill the best you could it was always like the yimbies would oftentimes go on board and support a tenant protection law or rent control proposal but you would never see that the, the tenant groups would never support a yimby law and so over time they kind of ceded i think a lot of their influence in that regard by essentially collapsing the three piece coalition it became clear that this wasn't ever going to work, that we were never going to get their support. And this, and this was pointed out before during SB50, but this has been very clear now. If you want influence on a law, you can't just always oppose it no matter what, unless you've got a lot of power backing it up. Like if yeah. you're the realtors or you're the building trades, you can pull that off. But if you're not one of those people, you have to give a little to get some, right? <laughs> or, 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 or more importantly, you have to show a willingness to support, right? Yeah. So like, I mean if you do what I say, and I'm going to get your support, then I'm going to change what you, what, what, what I, what I do. The problem with a lot of the, like, honestly, the housing uh, justice tenant nonprofits was that they would make all these demands to be in these laws and then you do it and then they don't support it anyways. So it's like, what is the incentive in listening to you? If you're going to just oppose the law anyways at the very end and then mobilize a whole bunch of people now a lot of this was due to the boneheaded strategies of not only western center but also aids healthcare foundation and that clearly blew up now aids healthcare foundation is totally irrelevant because they stepped on so many toes and failed every initiative they tried and there's been this kind of restructuring now that the sort of it's been clear to everyone. I've had shelter force reporters come up to me and say, oh yeah, their their power is kind of diminished a bit. Like a bit, no. But like 
it's it's clear to everyone that the 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 influence in terms of the necessity of the three piece coalition has kind of moved out of the housing equity nonprofits court into the MB court. And a lot of that was because of SB9. Um, even though it didn't necessarily do much in terms of housing production, it was a huge narrative shift. The willingness of legislators to vote for something that challenged very fundamental California living standards like suburbia. And the fact that legislators was expecting this huge NIMBY backlash and it never happened was part of the whole like, oh, well, we actually can do land use. And that's what led to the coalitions. And the Yimby Union Coalition very much illustrated that the ball was in the Yimby's court here. It's not like the housing justice tenant nonprofit groups can't cause um, a lot of strife and 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 annoy people, I guess, and make more misery than necessary. Sure, they can, but it's clearly not swinging votes. And the main reason why that's the case is because all the legislators who are willing to carry tenant bills and rent control bills are all yimbies. Yeah. And so that, that doesn't work anymore, right? It worked in 2018, 2017, when yimbies were new and a lot of the pro-tenant legislators from all the equity groups and whatnot were all anti-yimby. But like the person who carried Ellis Act reform is like democratic socialist, Alex Lee, who proudly proclaims he's a yimby. It's uh, going to be Mia Bonta, um, wife of Rob Bonta, who probably ran as a Yimby. That like like the whole divide between the left and Yimby that was tried to that 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 they tried to prop up for very long isn't really there anymore in terms of the elected representatives. And so that's reflected in the fact that AB twenty eleven um or not AB twenty eleven but AB twenty ninety seven passed with all Democrat yeses, a couple of extensions, and all the no's were from Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, based upon you saying that SB9 was the EMB's flexing the muscles that we can do something, I mean, for years, I mean, before this, talk about, you know, SB330 went through, SB, you know, or uh, 1482, AB1482 went through, and then SB35 went through. I mean, compare that to what has been the power of, you know, what you call, like, is the... That like the anti-Yimby equity orgs like talk about in 2017 or so they tried to pass a straight Custa Hawkins repeal and like it got like it it didn't get any support, which is to say, I think you talk about kind of the equity quote unquote nonprofit like housing justice whatever, like they have like you say they have power to be annoying. I mean, in my mind, they have the power to give reasons to kill things usually for people who are the bad guys who just want an excuse but they they don't have the muscle to put anything out there they have well, very I very mean, little positive vision and they don't they don't have the votes to put like to put anything out there and would, which is to say i th- like the 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 yimby votes have gone more and more for you know basically tenant justice bills and i'd say not really for back scratching reasons for you know to get a response like hey i'll do this if you help me out later because yeah it's not, not three it's not three p stuff it's genuine yeah. they genuinely believe that stuff. they're doing yeah. the right thing to do and honestly yeah the people should be thankful that like like it's very good that like essentially the left yimbies are winning uh because you know certainly the anti-yimby block isn't going to do anything to help anybody because they have no yeah power. i mean that's kind of that's kind of been the conclusion increasingly from the legislator so the the anti-yimby block has no power in the bay area none i mean yeah. a, a, as far as the legislators go um people just don't buy it and which and it is i mean when with when people talk about sb50 like 
it is true that most of that was killed by conservatives but without a doubt like you know uh holly mitchell and others really did you know bradford um what's his name Durazo. a lot of them did buy into a lot of the like anti-mb stuff from the left there was in like terms one of or two true to. believers sure yeah especially from los angeles that i mean that was very that was very that was that was a thing but it's just been dwindling and i think because of the fact that if you take oppositional like when people when the equity groups would come up and complain about sb50 their complaints was it caused displacement um the affordable housing requirements weren't high enough etc cetera, etc cetera. it didn't target suburban communities it targets low-income all that stuff and it's like all right fine so then they would watch as yimbies would come forward like genuinely put forward proposals try to take criticisms and see the same responses every time no matter what it was and i think legislators pretty clearly picked up like okay so you're just going to oppose everything they do no matter what simultaneously it is true that a lot of legislators especially in southern california who were already going to vote against sb50 the big upzoning bill um from 2019 2020 that they were going to do it anyways and they just use a lot of the left rhetoric as cover yeah that's true um and that's kind of why the conservative element was always a lot more important to focus on. But the media liked to focus on the housing justice organizers and gave them a lot of capital, but they kind of squandered it. Like, I don't, you know, it's just kind of it, they like, if you don't give any, then like no one has any reason to work with you, right? If you're going to just give us this, like the whole strategy, and I put most of the blame on um, Western Center and in particular AIDS Healthcare Foundation, because a lot of the housing justice groups did have productive responses and conversations with yimbies and will continue to have them such as like ace and um act, act LA. la yeah i mean you mentioned yeah. like sb50 i mean there is really dumb suggestions but act la put out like a constructive letter which is actionable it mean, like a I lot mean, of I, act I, LA's I may not recommendations. Agree every point they had but like you can do something with it whereas western center i know every time they're just going to come up with the most deranged, stupid reasons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, like, I think Act LA for the most part was just motivated by not trying to undermine the local TOC thing they had going on. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, you can work with them and understand where they're coming from. You can see that we kind of do want to get to the same place here. With Western Center, it is completely ideological. There's and no, there's no reality. Like Affluent white boomers. It's like, well, who are these people to say they represent equity? And the, and the thing is, that was so perfectly revealed in AB uh, 2097, which was the parking requirements bill. Yeah. So that was the bill in which um, we have tried to get rid of requiring builders to build parking for years. When we talked about it in 2011, 2010, it's been going on for a long time. It dies every time. And so we finally got a bill through that says if it's near transit, uh, you cannot require developers to build a bunch of parking. That's great. But the Western Center vigorously opposed that bill. They fought it hard and they lobbied in particular Southern California suburbanites to go out and oppose it. And it was so confusing because their arguments are always like the reason we want to defend parking requirements is because you're giving away value to developers without recuperating it in terms of requirements for affordable housing. And that parking is a good tool that is used in exchange for affordable housing by local governments. When people from journalists to 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 researchers to to advocates noted that there has never been any local jurisdiction ever that has ever traded uh, parking requirements for affordable housing, Western Center just plugged their ears to it because it's yeah. dumb. If anyone has ever done California politics, you know full well that there's only one thing people care about more than anything, including affordable housing, and that's 
parking. The idea that anyone would give that up for affordable housing requirements is goofy. They would trade that for affordable housing requirements. It's the other way around. And so Western Center just kept saying it. And people would be like, here's the research. And Western's like, I don't see it. I don't care. I'm going to just keep asserting that. And there was no point in putting an affordability requirement in an AB 29. Like, what's what's the point? Like, parking is a luxury amenity. But from Western Center's perspective, parking makes housing a lot more expensive to construct. And therefore, it's a good thing um, because they don't want the market rate housing to get built. And yeah, they I also want to negotiate it at the local level to do their extractions and stuff. And so for that reason, they're, they're, they don't see making housing easier to build as a positive. That's just philosophically their thing. And a and bunch a lot of, of like people, white, white boomers, I think they, they are scared of seeing less parking. I think they're just like- Yeah, I mean, that's part of it too. They A lot of them just think they just have to drive everywhere. And and yeah. and, 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 they, and they left wash it. They do that here in Berkeley all the time too. Um, and it was really fascinating to see how it just wasn't that compelling in the legislature. Like- no, no votes against AB 2097 from Democrats. You got abstentions from Southern California, especially Los Angeles. Yeah, of course. But no, no votes. That shows the I mean, all the, the nine no votes were from Republicans. That shows the power of the Yimby message in that regard, because that was weird. not yeah. the case four years ago. It's a, yeah, like, I mean, like, like Buffy Wicks talked about it like four years ago. You said half the stuff Yimby say now. And you would have sounded insane. That's not possible. That's not doable today. That's the that's kind of the dominant message. So. I know people don't, you know, put much uh, value into narrative wins, but narrative wins are absolutely important. Even Democrats who didn't like getting rid of parking requirements felt too embarrassed to not actually like vote for it. It's 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 weird too to see this new kind of flavor. I mean, like last year, it was kind of killed in committee through weird palace intrigue, and you know, Portentino was the main guy that killed it. Now Portentino has withdrawn his opposition and is now a co-author of the new version of the parking minimum bill. And like, I, I think I think we're seeing the point where anyone who isn't who has any political instincts just knows you have to back the winning team. And like, yeah, I'm 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 happy to win. I think the question is when you have different people in the mix, uh, are the actual policies going to be crafted well? And I, I think on you say like just very, very broadly you could say the entire point of parking minimum, you know, basically removing parking minimums is not nearly enough, which is to say, yeah, you say a lot of places people will build parking no matter what. Uh, I think that if you compare it like SF got rid of local level, San Diego got rid of a local level, and there's different responses to how much you actually see new underparked places. I think if it's statewide, perhaps you'll see more financing, but we probably need to move to maximums. Uh, but I will say in this, there are some weird yeah. carve outs that make it weird. You say like, you know, af there is no affordable housing requirement in different cases. And the cases are if it's less than 20 units, you just basically you can just not have parking and you don't have to go through a bunch of hoops. And, you know, you can do your other programs, do what, how it is. Uh, but if it's more than that, the city can force you to jump through extra hoops if you if a certain things are triggered. One of them is will it impact current parking which is like that's an awful requirement because i bet that'll probably always be true and that certainly like i don't really care if current parking people are, are like are going to be affected i don't know if that's a portentino poison pill or something but i don't like it but i guess if this only does that for 20 years or less that's still a start i guess yeah you know i don't know if it's a portentino poison pill either um as we all know, Portentino killed SB50. It is, I, I think that realistically, I think Portentino 
is not very much on the MB agenda because you know he basically was one of the people who gave it one of its biggest blows. So but he's a biker. He's like authentically like uh, a biker dude. Yeah, you get these like weird overlaps where like especially in suburbia where like people will understand the transportation aspect but will not understand how housing is so relevant to that. It's really weird. Like you get like progressive like I, I run into this all the time. It's like like cyclists and like enviro people who totally get it on cars and transportation. That's all bad. But for some reason, they don't understand that this is a byproduct of land use. And they think that you can just like, this is just some regulatory thing. And it's, it's really, it's really weird. It's, I mean, you go to like Palo Alto and they, they love their little bike lanes and everything else. But they're like, if you build a new building, it must have parking. I'm like, why, why, why? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of, it's just a lot of boomer brain. Honestly, yeah. a lot of it is like boomer old Gen X brain. Like it, yeah. that's just all there is. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, I, it's a question. I mean, I'd like to see how this how this will happen. Will it make a big difference? Uh, I'm guessing I'm well, guessing the good it thing, will. The, I think it will. But I think that like AB 2011's requirements are just so much better. Um, it says that in AB 2011, you don't have to build residential parking for the new commercial housing. Um, but it doesn't override uh, requirements for electric vehicles or bike parking. Which I'm totally fine. That's great. Um, so it was kind of like a subtle like anti parking bill too, in many ways. That's interesting. I although I, I'm scared. I mean, I think that we're at a turning point, which is to say, as we move away from ice vehicles to EVs, one major thing, a choice we have, are we gonna build an incredible amount of EV charging spaces or are we going to actually lessen the amount of spaces? And I think, honestly, it'd be really good if we got a lot less EV charging stations. Like, for example, if you don't build a million charging stations on the street, at a certain point, street parking goes away. If you build a bunch of street EV charging stations, then people are still parking on the street. So, like, I would love to make it illegal to ever put an EV charger on a curb because curbs should not belong to cars. But I guess we'll I, mean, see. I think there's kind of a concern if you do all that, like we're penalizing electric vehicle people and i i don't know i i'm willing to like let the evs go wild in exchange for better transit and cycling like i don't i don't like it just the reality is is that it just it, it is better for the environment for people to be using evs so i can't i i, I agree that like hyper focus on evs and stuff kind of makes me roll my eyes but you know yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think at the very least, I think a lot of people feel that the future will look like it does today, but just with EVs instead of, of ice cars. And I don't I don't know. Like, I think that we're going to need some change if we're really going to survive and also have more livable cities. But, you know, I think uh, I'll be I'll happily be a hardliner here, but we'll 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 find out. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, the same, but the same thing with 2011, I mean, basically 2097, as you said, there are some no votes, usually kind of arch conservatives. But then again, the equity justice orgs are all like, you know, flipping out about it. And I just say, like, if you are Gavin Newsom and you see if you're going to vo vote for this, uh, they're seeing, you know, essentially it's only right wingers and then a bunch of weird nonprofits. And then also I guess the nonprofits that are inside HCD and like kind right. of. Right. So that's the problem, right? Like Western center and all those folks can't really convince legislators, but they have all their like career MPIC into um, various government agencies, a hundred percent. 
And so like, yeah, the people who get hired for ACD are people who have been like at Housing California for a bajillion years. And so they're going to be the ones Gavin does oftentimes listen to his departments, but I just, I'm not totally convinced that he's going to, yeah, I'm not totally convinced that he's going to do it in this circumstance. And I'm not totally convinced that ACD is going to do some like NIMBY stuff to the governor. It is possible because Western Center is really going all out to try to deprive the Gimbys of a win. Because if we win this, and it's pretty clear that we're probably going to, like the, the narrative is just really bad for him. So it it is possible. Um, and if you're listening, absolutely, like search up how to write to your governor. It's pretty easy. And then please tell him to go sign AB 2097. But I just, I don't, I, I don't see Gavin, who's been very clear about his like anti-NIMBY agenda, tanking parking requirement because HCD told him to. Yes, I mean, in general, I mean, Gavin, I mean, my my frame of mind is like, Gavin well, hold on. Is... And, and so for those who are listening, ACD is the uh, housing authority for the state of California. Yeah, I mean, this show, I, I think that we always kind of depend upon people to search stuff up and, you know, <laughs> ping us on Twitter or whatever, because like, yeah. there's not enough time to give like a complete rundown of what everything is. Uh, but I, my, 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 my point of reference for Gavin is like, he will, some people are just going to do whatever less friction, you know, in the moment, they'll be lazy and whatever, they'll let the departments do the work. Gavin is, he's concerned about his future in national politics. So he's about making sure his image is going to be fine. And I think the question is, if he kills parking minimum reform, will this be a huge blow to his image? I think it might be. So we, we saw in the last in the last couple of weeks, uh, Gavin, you know, vetoed this bill about, you know, basically making it easier or whatever to do safe injection sites, which clearly seemed like he is afraid of of not of seeming too scary to suburbanites. And I think it's probably part of his future political goals at the national level. Uh, but I, I think it's a real question, which is, is getting on, like, I, I think at the, I think California is a sign of the future. And the fact that, like, you're seeing kind of a center-left kind of consensus around uh, the Yimby bills and whatnot, I think it means Gavin knows where the wind is going. And I think he can't afford to kind of screw it up or something i don't know that's yeah yeah i don't it's 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 very much a weird situation um gavin basically is pandering and he knows that uh when he runs for president people will bring up the safe injection site stuff so that's why he's exactly uh yeah but i don't know how much that's going to matter for like these kinds of laws like whatever i was going to say that you stop requiring developers to provide parking it just doesn't it doesn't it's lend itself boring, to as certainly. much of a yeah, yeah, he wants Gavin's trying to avoid the like San Francisco constituency. They don't really care about land use bills. So I don't know. I mean, I, the the question is if Gavin backstabs everyone right now, is there any political blowback? I think there could be because I think there's. I mean, if the if if he backstabs Labor on not approving AB twenty eleven, that would be yeah. remarkable. I couldn't believe he would. I wouldn't believe he would do that. Yeah, I think. And why is he saying all this anti NIMBY rhetoric and just gonna like switch over it? I don't think that's gonna happen. No. I still think he'll sign AB 2097. Of course, it is less likely than AB 2011, but still. So speaking of predictions, let's go, let's go back to the record. I, I listened to last year. We predicted who was going to, uh, what, what his margin was going to be in the recall. Uh, I was a bit of a coward. I only said he'd get 53%. You were more of a coward and said 52%. So I, I won. 
uh, you know, not not well, I wasn't I was a little far off, well, but uh, what was uh, his margin? It was like sixty seven percent or something huge, you know. Like people people did not like Larry Elder because uh, he's. I said people don't know who he was. I I I got. I mean, I don't know. We we were really really like it was the pandemic and everything. It really did feel like Gavin was gonna get was close to getting called. But it turned well, now, out to be a lot of fun. Now he's only ascendant, you know. Gavin cannot be cannot be touched. Uh, but okay, so let's talk about. We talked about the two bills on his desk. Uh, there's more stuff on his desk too. It's being important. Tino uh, SB four five fifty seven. This is a uh, one thousand dollar tax credit if you don't have a car, uh, which is well, with a whole bunch of caveats. Yeah. Oh well, what are the caveats? Well, it's not. It's not uh, refundable. So like, it's not like you get a thousand if you're if you're poor. It, uh, yeah, but like it, it applies to households. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I think it it's about a household not having a car. And I wonder if you can, like, share it between people on a block. Because I'm always like, car sharing could be the future if you really do it right. But Yeah, I mean, I think car sharing is really good, too. But, like, it, it'll probably help very low-income households that may not technically have a... So, sorry, no, it applies to tax households. My apologies. Hmm. So, if you file as sort of a household and someone in their household has a car, then no. But if you file as separate households, then yeah, you can get the you can get the tax credit. Interesting. I mean, I don't think it's like the 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 most impactful policy. I'm just it's funny to see. It's a good like this. it's a good narrative. It's a good yeah. narrative win. It's also a good like incremental step towards something good. So especially because like earlier in the year, Gavin was spending the surplus on giving car owners money for owning a car. Which well, is that's the- what he had proposed, and I, I think he heard a lot of pushback that like bad it's bad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Bad okay, AB twenty fifty three. This has been this has been like the big big thing this year. The Alex Lee social housing bill. Uh, I, when this was out, everyone talking about it says like, okay, this is such a innovative crazy bill. This is going to die in its first or second committee, and that's going to be fine. It's a good start. Like no one expected it to get through the entire assembly committees pass the assembly on a floor vote and then make it through several of the senate ones but it did yeah and it did um <laughs> it was and like, it, it did a, it because attack in some and ways. It, well it wasn't really it was just the power of yimbies and unions so the building trades was on that bill and they supported it and because alex lee uh did such really good negotiating with labor groups uh, it, it and it had YIMBY backing. There was a lot of incentive to per, to actually pass that bill. The reason it died is because conservatives got it at the last minute. Um, in That's one why of those I'm sneak attack. I mean, the thing yeah. is, talk about like a, a, a massive YIMBY bill because it actually would create a lot of like building opportunities. It actually would like it would mean the state building a ton. Uh, but on top of it, like conservatives who hate building they especially hate the idea of like public like public housing yeah and the problem the problem we ran into there was that the people who killed it philosophically just thought public housing doesn't work yeah um, anna caballero yeah yeah like, i mean she she, like, she said like, she, she she hates social housing so like that's a bad yeah. sign i mean that is that is the current like problem it also yeah. didn't help that we had Western Center and crew sniping at the bill a whole bunch for meaningless ideological reasons. But, yeah. You know. Well, I mean, that's a, people still talk about this. There's this whole thing of like the the line by the Western Center and all these other orgs is this bill isn't real social housing because it it's revenue neutral and like 
to my mind, that's just an incredibly stupid point, which is if you like break that down, that's saying is like if you have a, a housing agency which is self-sufficient, that's bad. It needs to have external subsidies or it'll die. And like to me, like that is how we killed all the public housing in America. We basically created this very fragile structure, whereas as soon as you cut off the flow of money, it withered up and you know stopped working well. So the, uh, the 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 problem really was is that we had to sort of contend with the nonprofit housers, right? The, and I don't I'm not talking about the housing justice. I'm talking about the low income housing builders. So. We don't have public housing really in the U.S. anymore. I mean, state agencies may do something here and there, but for the most part, we outsource that to the tax credit, light tech people. Yeah. And you had to make the case in the legislator that if we're going to do a new social housing agency, it isn't going to just take away from the money that already goes towards the tax credit nonprofits because they already build low-income housing. So the obvious question became, what the hell is the point of the state agency? If these nonprofits already do it fine, why are you coming in? And the problem with the nonprofits is that they're very bad at cross-subsidy compared to what a state agency could do. Um, they're also incredibly cumbersome. There's a whole bunch of other costs in terms of the operation and management of these buildings that would be reduced with uh, the social housing developer. Well, and they, they don't and, scale, and they also they they go like you they they disappear in time. The whole idea of light tech is you don't really create public ownership you're renting public ownership for a couple decades yeah it, and it's funded through a bunch of like benevolent banks and people that want to get like favorable tax credits it's just not it's just not a very optimal housing strategy but whatever it is it's the one we currently have we yeah. knew that if we put that bill together and we were going to war against litech we were going to lose and they because, have power unlike all the loser you know nonprofits like mph they 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 can they can mph re- yeah the, the low-income housing builders have a lot of power so yeah. you had to we had to tread a very careful line of we're not going to take away money from an existing pot rather we're going to capture capital uh through market rents and through market leases into low-income housing which is a good thing for some reason this got framed as a bad thing by the left which is so weird because it was totally not what the left was saying for the last like five years. But for the last years, it was always like Yimbies are bad because landlords just take capital and pocket it and put it into the stock market and shareholders. You should take that capital and use it to build low income housing. Then it would be I mean, that was literally like uh Dylinky's whole like uh the 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 German left's uh expropriation argument was like yeah. rent should go towards building more housing and not to profit. Yeah. The whole point of the state agency was that it would capture rents, not only provide middle class people with housing, which they need housing. And the more people who can't get housing in the middle class are the more people who have to wait on uh, Litech wait lists for 100%, 120% AMI housing by Litech. So the whole appeal was you capture those rents and you use it to finance low income housing. And for some really weird reason, the left got like, and by the left, I mean the no, but it's not because MPEG is the the tax credit people who also hated this bill, but for different reasons. Um, no, but I mean, the, the, like, in my mind, the, the are people groups, like Western Center public advocates, sure, ace, the consulting, you know, the consulting, the consulting class, and also nonprofit. Damian Goodman, you know, gadflies like that. Yeah, well, th- I mean, those are goofballs, but like those characters don't matter at all. But when you talk about like Western Center and them, yeah. Their whole thing was that like, and even Ace was arguing this to like some degree, and you saw this a lot in a lot of like very established based 
um, like nonprofit activist types were like always pitching it as like this bill would only help middle class people. This bill, and it's like, wait, but you spent like five years telling us that like true social housing was not the segregated ghetto projects of the past, but rather the income integrated uh social housing european style projects of red vienna and all that stuff which essentially did exactly what we did which was use the public developer to house all incomes and so it they wanted to like they, they treated it like it was sb50 trying to like impose affordability requirements on a public developer um which had a whole host of problems most notably that you're constraining it to build in only the most profitable markets like a normal developer would have to do to compensate for affordability requirements, which would damage the ability to finance housing out in Central Valley, Fresno, et cetera, where market rates are much lower, but more importantly, where construction costs are lower. And so you want to get a lot of people who will live in high poverty, especially in the agricultural industry. Like the big appeal to me about AB 2053 wasn't so much the fact that it was going to build in San Francisco or Los Angeles, which is what a lot of the nonprofit people who come from those areas were also concerned about. The big concern for me was whether it was going to build housing out in like Chico or Bakersfield, because those are the places where developers, private developers, have no interest in building. And they've complained about this for a long time. These are places with huge housing costs and big developers all just want to build out in the coast or as close to the coast as they can get in suburban areas. But they like like places like Fresno have so much demand for housing. And because it's not profitable enough, um, they don't want to build at the market rates there. They'll just go to Clovis nearby. And so the entire appeal of the public housing agency was it would be able to actually build at those profit margins and then recuperate that revenue into long-term housing. For some really weird reason, all of a sudden, the social housing people that propagated that stuff for like years, all of a sudden became like American public housing project defenders. Now we're back to it has to only be low-income housing or else. And it was just, I think that they proposed some valid criticisms. I will say that I think that the revenue neutrality clause, um, which essentially prohibited the agency from ever using state funds to satisfy LIHTC, was probably not the wisest thing to put in there. Um, and it was struck. So they were listened to in that regard. But it was but, really but lo- it, local funds were always kosher. Federal funds were always kosher. Yeah. And I, I I don't I didn't understand exactly what this was about. There was some guardrail about keeping the LIHTC people from going uh, from getting paranoid. But yeah, like LIHTC, LIHTC people all like were like, uh, we don't know about this, chief. This is what we do. And we were like, um, well, we're not going to take away state funds from you guys. Yeah. So it's cool. And like, like you're negotiating with those people and then other people. And honestly, I'm going to be real honest with you. The whole thing to me felt like tribal party wars and nothing else. Yeah. I um, mean, because so- because like I don't believe for a f- minute um, that if like some lefty approved elected like Dean Preston, for example, had proposed this policy that it would have gotten the same reaction it did. There was a lot of reaction against it solely because the people who were backing it were Yimbis. Um, And I had people in the DSA tell me this, oh, people just don't like it because Yimbis are behind it. It's like, okay, what are the actual substantive criticisms? Oh, there aren't really any, it's just because Yimbis are behind it. And it's just like, it's like, you're so childish. You really, you guys really don't have any actual seriousness in solving that. It's just a whole bunch of performance. People love being perpetual activists and don't actually want to solve any problems. And that's, that's why I liked 2053 so much, because it was really good at identifying in particular to legislators who was actually serious about all that social housing stuff for years, right? Yeah. As soon as it actually came up, 
Then we had the whole moving goalposts, making excuses. And of course, you know, Western Center had their people um, and in staffing and everything else that tried to snipe at the bill and the bill analysis. We all knew that they did that. That wasn't a secret. Um, like Western Center had some, uh, uh, after begging over and over and over again, um, Western Center finally got some uh, 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 legislative staffers to write uh, that the bill would disproportionately help moderate income people. And then right on cue, um, all the dead enders on social media uh, get the talking points ready. Like, well, look, look, it says it's going to help uh, moderate income people because the bill analysis says so. It's like, and we, we know that Western Center was begging because it originally didn't say that. So they were begging, like, please include this line. Please include this line. Please include this line. And they finally get it. They include it after like, okay, enough we're going to include it and then now it's like haha yimbies are building public housing for middle class people which in the rest of the world is like wow that's cool but here for some reason among brain worms it's like wow how dare you well this whole thing about people. like in general you like this is the same brain worms as like percentage mindset which is just in general is the point to build higher magnitudes of affordable housing or is it about pre- preventing a percentage of market rate housing. And it's the same yeah, thing. And, just yeah, the and fin- to them, the it's fimbies. about presenting, preventing it, preventing it. That's all it is. Are the FIMBIs, are the FIMBIs defined by they want to see public housing or they are like are saying they don't want to see market rate housing? It's very clear the that fin- a, the, a large the amount of FIMBIs are just, they, they, they mean, they just want to say, I don't want to see new housing and here's my excuse why I don't want to see new housing. The, the, the FIMBIs are defined by opposing whatever YIMBIs yeah it's like we we have some vaporware and the vaporware right now we talk about what is the positive vision and the positive vision has always been okay don't build private housing it needs to be publicly owned housing it's like okay well it's publicly owned housing and now it's not good enough because there isn't subsidy and And, the question is where is this subsidy supposed to come from like what is your game plan to have this subsidy at scale i don't even have a problem with wanting subsidies that sounds great it's it's about we're trying to we're trying to establish the agency right now yes like like, what, what is this? Why do we have to like, this is another thing that I really actually cannot stand. And one of the reasons why they've been so less successful than Yimbis have been, the, um, the, 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 the consultant nonprofit uh, housing justice organizer tenant people is that like, they don't understand how like multiple bills can work in conjunction. Right. Like that's one of the things that Yimbies are really good at. SB 35 plus SB 828 results in like really effective bills. By themselves, they may not do much, but in combination, they work. And so from our perspective, it was like, okay, we're gonna this bill is really just designed to establish the agency. That's yeah. all it's designed to do. It's not designed to solve every problem out there. We just want to get the agency up and running. And then we'll work on and then the, a couple like, of years. So it's going to be bills. like bylaws are going to be drafted. There's it's going to be a huge fight over like Yeah, the it's gonna be a huge fight. So we're just yeah. trying to get the agency up and running. Like you may not have the the, the money to make all the freeways when you establish Caltrans, but like you just want to get the agency up and running, right? But for some reason, they wouldn't get that. They wanted the bill to be perfect, ass- solve every problem right then and there, solve all the low-income housing problems. And if it didn't, they would not support it. And it was just like, what are you, what are you talking, what are you, why are you doing this? Like, like and why, the, the, why the are you guys major, acting like this? The, the two major asks were of two flavors. One was, we will not be like you should not build too much in uh sensitive areas uh which is to say we don't want public we wouldn't we don't want the social housing to, to gentrify areas which you can take on any on any, any I'd, I'd say there is an argument to be made that you should have community buy-in but if this blanket rule which are basically saying just make it impossible like it is eerily similar to redlining 
of saying I'm, yeah it's it's redlining 2.0 I'm, I'm sorry i'm tired of like coding this stuff this is redlining yeah. 2.0 the idea that like you should never build anything but first of all i'm 100 percent convinced and i know this for a fact most people in low-income areas do not think that there should be state laws to prohibit uh anything other than subsidized low-income housing in low-income areas that that is literally only popular maybe in like the mission district in sf and uh like maybe like i don't know some highly gentrified area in la but that is not something that most low-income communities support if you tell the like poor community out in fresno the only housing that's allowed to get built there is subsidized housing and like they can't have any kind of like unregulated housing at all they would be pissed off there's no way that would be approved and it's not because they're worried about gentrification not everybody wants to get their housing on a waitlist application a lot of people just want to walk up and apply for housing that's one of the really nice things about like hbd in singapore and one of the things that we wanted to do here you're going to have public housing you can just walk up like like japanese housing does this a lot like you are housing they th this is great you just have housing available it's low rent you just walk up and so that's one of the big appeals of not having the like deed restricted income based housing um in a lot of like low-income areas and for some reason like they like they're trying to pass rules that might make sense in some highly gentrified areas in sf and la for the yep. entire state and it doesn't make any sense yeah and so, i mean like it's, yeah <laughs> it's just it's just ideologically opposed to development and the other part being that the other kind of flavor of objection is you know to create subsidy it must be a higher percentage of every unit which is the whole point like at a certain level the question is, does it operate in the black or in the red? If every building operates in the red, it won't get built without subsidy. And if you need subsidy for every building, this prevents your scale. And the question is, would you rather see 20, like you built 20 really, really highly subsidized houses or, you know, build 200,000 that are going to be subsidized across to a degree, but the fact is you can scale it and you're going to help think a lot more people the latter. I think what frustrates me is that like I'm always I think this is what really has why so much of this has changed with AB 2011. We're willing to make concessions. I don't agree with their logic, but there are like things we can add into the bill. We got rid of the revenue neutrality, which was huge, right? You think that would be enough to get them on board, but it wasn't. And this is the same thing with SB 50. You give them what they want. And if it's not 100% plus, then they're just never going to support it. And it, it really does eventually beg the question, what is the incentive to listen to you if you're never going to give us a, like, this was the question we would constantly ask. If we do this in AB 2053, can we get you as a supporter then? And then it would be like, mm, well, no, we're, you, we expect you to just do that. And then we're going to probably end up saying, uh, we're going to probably end up just not saying anything about the bill anyways. And it's like, then what is the point in, in listening to you? If you I don't give a like cookie, a lot you know? of, yeah, I don't I don't like a lot of the concessions that are made in land use bills, but we do it because it's part of coalition building. But for some reason, that's just not like that doesn't compute. And to them, it's like you have to give us everything we want and then then we'll debate whether we support it. That's not how legislating works. And that's subsequently why it doesn't matter when Western Center now says that they hate on Yimby bills. Legislators don't care because you're not going to you're not going to change your positions no matter what the bill says unless the bill doesn't exist. So it well, doesn't when you when you said they got rid of revenue neutrality, you meant they got rid of the of the of like allowing of the revenue states. neutrality clause. Yeah. Well, but but the thing is, in general, like I the whole idea of revenue neutrality, it like 
I don't want to see that go because it really means is it self-sufficient? If if you if you if you if you create a like essentially a poison pill saying you must have subsidy or this entire agency will die, that's extremely bad. I don't know. Like I think I, there I, was better way. I mean, we can always fix it up in future laws. I'm not worried about them them constructing a lot of subsidized housing and then they suddenly fall apart. I, I'm not really in worried about mind, that. Even I if think that's it should not... have, if you build in a subsidy for units, it should be basically you need to find it in perpetuity. Like you can't say we get like five years of subsidy and then like after five years, what happens? Like get to beg for to keep it going. That's really scary. Yeah, it, it seemed like there. It seems like the equity nonprofits' whole argument was that the agency should just keep begging year after year for subsidies rather yeah. than rely on cross subsidy for housing, which no social housing agency has ever meaningfully done that hasn't run into deficits or austerity. So yeah, be begging it was, it is was not very the best. weird. You talk about like yeah, Yimbys. They 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 do multiple things at the same time. The real bills are stronger together. The whole social housing nonprofit thing. This whole like very early in the session, there was this big thing. Okay, there's two bills out there. There is the Alex Lee social housing bill, which builds stuff. We're kind of skeptical of that, but we think we only have energy to support a bill which is going to beg for money for acquisitions. And it was going to be a hundred million dollars to acquire like five thousand units. Or five hundred units, or something. Yeah. So there, and, oh, there was a whole thing too. I, I don't know how much. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And, I, and I'm just saying, like, the whole thing is like, why can't you do both? Like, I don't understand. And I mean, I think a big reason is I, I talked to, I had like some conversations with some people because I, I was, uh, I, I, I voiced my complaint saying like, I don't, I don't think the socializing coalition should do anything else but enthusiastic support for the social housing bill, which is going to build stuff. And some people say like. Well, we don't really like building. We want to do just acquisitions. Uh, and we one big reason is if you build stuff, you'll have to worry about NIMBYs. And that's hard. And we don't want to do that. And I'm just saying, I'm sorry. If you want to help people and you're afraid of like the bad guys making it hard and you are just not going to face them off, I'm sorry. Like At a certain point, you're going to have to face the NIMBYs. And if you don't think yeah. that's part of your roadmap, I'm sorry, you're, you don't have a positive vision. Their whole thing was that they wanted to do this like weird struggle session at the start where like um, a lot of the not. So so th the first round of edits for AB 2053 was very revealing because a lot of it was written by like the Western Center crew. Um, it might have been someone. Western Center Public Advocates. Everyone, everyone thought it was so it was, bad. It was, it was one of them, but they, they wrote a whole bunch of edits that eventually got reversed. But it was really fascinating to see what their edits were. Well, which and, is, uh, to give some context, I mean, day one, Alex Lee, you know, his office basically said, we're doing the social housing bill. There's no text. And at a certain point, he had to put in basically the minimum amount of text. And the minimum amount of text, I don't, like, people are speculating. Did he go to... The Western Center of Public Advocates or something to get basically or ACER to get like a draft which is going to be legal. But the legal draft said basically we're going to do a study session and that's it. <laughs> which was like, okay, this kind of sucks. Like this is like we want more than this. And that's that's the first draft you're talking about. Yeah. It was just really strange. But like what they decided to the excuse was, oh, this is just gibberish in order to get the actual bill text in. And that's okay. But it's like the things you chose as gibberish is very fascinating because I had known from the pipeline around people talking and stuff that this is kind of what they wanted. And like part of what they wanted was to like spend two years debating what social housing was on a commission. Yeah. And then they the wanted to like. Thing, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, why are we why are we doing this? Like we have a we have a housing crisis and you want to spend two years 
talking about what social house that is pure like do think, nothing perpetual yeah. activist and uh, we all know what it's going to be it's going to be a big show and it's going to be like all the nonprofits will get their you know six figure checks hi i'm here uh here to testify on what social housing is and here in this radical geographer class uh we learned that uh the social housing metrics that ingles talked about in the housing question uh really shows to light about what vienna did and what this obscure little place and it's like okay what how is this going to change the law at all right what is it going to do the, the whole legislative process has talked about what the agency should do. We don't need two years for all MPIC to come together and like consultant MPIC, of course, to come together and talk about what social housing is. We had those little hearings already. That's what I'm saying. We did deal. that last year. Buffy's hearings. We had people yeah. talk about like, why, you know, why do we need to talk Vienna? about it for two it's more like, years? Yeah. And I, I mean, and to be frank, it's like nice to have people give a presentation. It d- didn't do anything it doesn't change right? anything it doesn't change anyone's mind it's a right? purely like, demonstrative thing to say like it's for the public to see hey what's social housing and great. i mean i'm you, good on buffy you can learn for more doing on twitter it. if you just search stuff yeah and and good on buffy for doing it i'm not no, I'm no not absolutely it's the right thing it's the way sacramento works i think it's kind of goofy but you know yeah I, I think it's 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 a way of demonstrating uh energy to to work with new programs so like yeah it's it's a way of showing they're serious and good you know good fine yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah but no i mean it's you know we saw it was killed in finance and governance by people who were opposed to social housing and then you know and and the the question is okay what does this mean for next year or like is like are we going to see a resolution to the anti-social housers? Are they going to be less skeptical? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, believe that like lefties. I don't even like to keep saying left. By why the like housing consultant class uh, equity nonprofits had anything to do with meaningfully killing AB 2053? Um, I know they didn't, and no one said they did. But it would honestly be helpful if we could work on this bill without having like Western Center have their staffers attack it and stuff and have go back to their membership meetings and talk a bunch of trash about it, which we all see and have access to um, for no apparent reason other than the fact that you don't like the fact that Alex Lee, who is a DSA member, is also a EMB. I think that that's really just like kind of childish and it's like it makes me not want to listen to them either honestly when you talk about childish you know the whole thing is like you talk about the first draft the first draft came out of nowhere it seemed to be really underwhelming the second draft was drafted by alex lee's office which is unusual like and that's a thing the people in the nonprofit industrial complex were saying like wait usually the way this works is they come to us and they ask us to write the bill for them and they didn't what's up does he not know how this works and the answer is like no his office knows how it works and he knows that you people don't have any good ideas and they well, i don't know to- if alex thinks that part i just think that well, like okay that's well, my that's me speculating well, yeah, the sidelines but the thing is like if you want a job done well do it yourself and i respect that like, alex is a huge housing nerd he understands social housing very well we, we, we have, he has been on panels and conversations with people doing other social housing programs throughout the United States. He yeah. doesn't need to outsource this to NPIC. There's no reason for, I mean, they're always welcome to give their opinions, but like he can write the bill just fine. It's not, it's not a problem. And clearly, um, it, he says something that I think was very clear. He did not want a bill that looked good and didn't work. He wanted a bill that actually that created a yeah. huge amount of publicly owned housing, which is yeah. like, cool. <laughs> I'm know? sorry. I'm not, I don't mean to dunk. But like it kind of reminds me of like 
the San Francisco Dean Preston resolution where they're like 10,000 units all this like housing units and they're just authorizing it through article 34 it's a yeah. really great like I'm not saying it's not a it's not worth doing I mean obviously Yimby's got article 34 repeal on the ballot so clearly it's a good thing to do to deal with article for 2024 yeah, yeah coming up coming um, the pipe. So like, I'm not saying it's bad, but like, it feels like to me, and I'm going to just be honest, a lot of the time it feels like it's very performative stuff. It feels like if you don't get the credit you think you deserve um, for an idea that like, you're just not going to support it. That's something that, that that's really what it feels like to me. Cause if a lot of it felt like we, we popularized social housing cause we talked about it endlessly for like three years. So so it's not fair for the Yimbies to come together and put together their own social housing proposal. And it's like, why are, why are we doing this right now? Who lit the cookie? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you guys write proposals that are good, I'm going to support it. I don't care if you were talking about it first. It doesn't make any difference to me. Yeah, this is like of- like SF. Like you can have a lot of vaporware. I mean, I think the the Bernie Kratz. I had I had the Bernie Kratz in the show talking about their social housing thing, and honestly, I think it's pretty it's pretty serious and good. Like a lot of people, uh, you are proposing good stuff. Some people are proposing vaporware that doesn't really exist. And like, yeah, I think we need to separate the people who are serious and people who aren't. You know, it's yeah. And that was really good about twenty fifty three because I think it became very clear to people who was serious and who was not. But also getting back to the point here. They didn't really matter in, in so far as why the bill died. Um, even as annoying as Western Center got. The bill died not just because of the anti public housing people, but I think more importantly because of the loss of labor support. And so that was that was big. So of course Alex Lee wrote the bill so that union workers would work on social housing. Um, which is actually totally fine to do because it's a state project and we can do state unionized contractors. That's not gonna be like grandma building an ADU. So the building trade was on board, but then you had like Speaker Rendon, who was very opposed, who likes to feud with the building trades a lot, purposely strike out the union clause in the bill during committee. Yeah, I didn't understand what was going, what the hell was going on. Well, so what was going on is that they wanted to sink the bill. They put a big target on it. Right, so, yeah, so he, he basically way. just wanted to rile up the the trades to kind yeah, of hey, this, please this kill this good... bill, but make it look like the, the you know it's like trying to make a rumor behind someone's back and gets it's like pulling a red harvest. No, on. it's like yeah, he put a big old chunk of dynamite on the bill by striking yeah. out the union provision. Alex Lee didn't have any control over that. It's a committee, so they strike it out, and then all of a sudden, trades is like, oh well, if we're not going to be building all the housing units, then we're not going to support, which is generally their position, and. That's really what I think doomed the bill going into that committee, not just because you had a conservative who didn't believe in public housing, but because you didn't have any union support backing that up. And as so the other point, huh? as a sideline, like everything in Sacramento is so stupid. Like it's like Calvin ball. Like what is going on? Anyone can like change stuff at any points. Like we had this whole like this you know, Stafford unionization thing yesterday that like one guy was continually pulling it and like re- like putting it back on the floor. Like I don't understand. Like the rules are completely impossible to understand. You just know that like a lot of people have essentially limitless power. Like Tony Atkins yeah, and committees Rendon can do whatever. Yeah, committee, you just have the power. Um, and it's so, nuts. yeah, it's very any de- democratic, but that's just. That's how legislating has gone in a democracy like this. So, I mean, it was it was pretty nuts. And so I think the lesson for next legislative season is we have to keep the building trades on board the entire time. 
and we have to find a way to stop them from doing some kind of underhanded sneak attack like that again. If we have the building trades on board, I mean, that's why the bill got as far as it did in yeah. terms of like passing through the assembly and getting through Senate committee before it died. But what it's you're saying, in other words, is you need to make sure that there isn't a single saboteur in any, you know, in any Or committee. you can have a saboteur, but it's got to be restored and it's got to be fixed, right? Well, I guess, yeah, the saboteur who doesn't have boundless power, I yeah. guess. We got to make sure that, like, Building Trace doesn't ditch the bill as soon as a saboteur like Rendon puts in an anti-labor provision. But, like, that's what it was, really. The public housing conservatives, as obnoxious as they are, I feel like we're also just going to kill the bill because labor was like pull the plug on it um so that is the it's the same path as ab 2011 we have to get labor on board but so, um, so you're saying the right way would have been labor would have said hey you can't do that we're gonna pass it through this com- this committee and then restore it afterwards i, I don't is that like i is think that the right? i don't know if it was lee's fault i mean you can't really blame it on any one legislator. lee's so new that like i don't know how lee went about it um but like something should someone should have communicated to the trace that like We'll get that language restored as soon as we can. Um, okay. It like it was. And so the trades immediately, as soon as the labor provisions were struck, um, went to a no position. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, speaking of, okay, so I, anything more about 2053? I think just a few more things I want to touch on and you know, kind of wrap things up. But No, uh, I think that's about it. I mean, it's not much else to say. Now, next, uh, the, 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 the big... No, oh, sorry, just go ahead. Yeah, it's not nice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, other bills around. The one thing that surprised me, the seamless bill, SB 917, died in, I think, appropriations on like, this weird. And I, I don't I don't understand what happened. I think there's some weird stuff, but that, that surprised me. Like, well, uh, transit agencies don't support seamless. I think I think a few are babies, and I think most actually realize it's the future. So I don't think VTA had enough power to kill it, even though they're lobbyists, they pay to kill stuff like this. So, I mean, it wasn't just VTA, though. It was like SF Muni. Mm, I think Muni knows this is the future. I think only VTA is a big baby, but we'll find I mean, out. AC Transit opposed it, too. Uh, but did they put the lobbyists behind it? I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll find out. But oh, yeah, it, we'll see. We'll see. It's the future. Like people, I, I we're just gonna lose time doing it by year. But talking about labor stuff, I one thing that really this is kind of usually outside the scope of the show. The show is most like we usually talk about housing. Uh, but a big thing we talk about here on the show is fast food. Uh, the fast food, the fast act, uh, AB two fifty seven is sectoral bargaining for fast food workers, this is which. Great. I, I think it's cr- like it's crazy good. Like I mean, honestly, I like we're talking about the difficulty, but how do you scale unions, like and how do you scale unions and keep everyone benefiting? Like sectoral bargaining, I'll just be frank, is the right way to do all this. Yeah, sectoral bargaining is is great. It's 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 very much the Nordic model, um, where like McDonald's employees make like twenty five an hour and have like what like three months of vacation or whatever it's great morale is better and i've been to mcdonald's in copenhagen it's great um and yeah we need a lot more sectoral bargaining i would love to see that in california and of course mcdonald's throwing a huge hissy fit oh this is going to hurt operations i don't know they have labor um unionized uh sectoral bargaining in europe and it seems totally fine but obviously maybe a lot of that's offset by having it cheap and um unsubstantiated here in in california no i mean i think it's it's a big 
I mean, McDonald's is kind of like the CIA, the landlords. Like, they just know how to whine. They've been whining about anything with labor for years and years and years. And the yeah. thing is, it I don't think it really matters. But the whole thing, like, it, it has to do, if it's a brand big enough for 100 units overall, and it's a common brand or standard option, so I guess uh, you can't have... Uh, not a, specifically 100 um, franchises. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so 100 units of a brand. So I guess it doesn't have to be necessarily franchised. It could be corporate-owned, but it's a total number of effectively what's like a concept. So, like, yeah, it's it can't be... It was originally 30 and went to 100. Uh, I think that's fine. Um, like, who does that cut out for the most part? I don't know. Well, there's a lot of small, you know, shops that are, like, less than that. But here's the thing. People say like, this makes a lot of sense. Not- I don't know. Which is like, okay, are the mom and pops, are they going to have bad labor standards? And people are saying, well, if you're going to have big chains in every city who have a standard, you know, sectoral bargaining wage, the mom and pops can't undercut them because they're just going to go to McDonald's and get a job there. So the what thing are mom is, and pop fast foods? I like I saw someone eating like Mr. Pickles. I think that it probably has like less Wait, than 10. Republicans went on the floor and were like naming off a bajillion fast food companies. Was that the people who did or didn't apply to the law? I'm guessing. I think they named the big ones. Uh, so oh, I think okay. they're like saying, please don't attack uh, McDonald's. Uh, but the thing is, like most places in the world are going to have a lot of chains because here's the thing. Big chains are good and they work well, you know. So the thing is that if people are saying there's going to be deadweight loss and chains are going to disappear, I'm sorry. No, we're not going to see chains disappear because chains are good and they work well and people like them. Uh, so the thing is, and in general, the chains will pick it up. The only places this isn't applied to are like crazy dystopias that like ban chains like San Francisco. So in, if you're in a normal place, you like workers will have the option to work at places that are chains and have good wages. If you're in a hellhole like San Francisco, you won't have those options, and you'll actually like be like you'll have bad labor standards. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, like that's the thing. Like maybe we need a lot more like publicly owned fast food chains to make sure that we have good labor standards. Uh, but like there'll be a massive fast food council, and it's pretty cool. There's ten seats on it. There'll be two franchisers, two franchisees, two people who are uh, fast food workers, two people advocates for fast food workers, an industrial department uh, rep, and then a governor's office rep. So, like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident they'll, they'll, like, good stuff will come from this. And I think the overall rules is, at least for next year, they can set a wage which is as low as the current minimum wage, fifteen fifty, up to twenty two dollars an hour. And that can increase by a certain scale every year. So that would be great. I would love that. Yeah, and morale would improve. Um, labor standards would improve, and it would just be great all around. No, absolutely no. I think uh, I think people are saying there might be some worries that like you'll see more use of ghost kitchens, which is to see like delivery only companies. Which is like, I, I mean, I hate delivery-only companies, and you might see more fa- drive-throughs. And honestly, I think drive-throughs should be banned. Uh, so we'll but, see. I mean, if- we should do more to accommodate pedestrians. Like In-N-Out Burger hates pedestrians so much in NorCal. No, it sucks. It sucks a lot, you know. And like, it, it I make I mean, it I really hard to to, go, to get to the store on foot. Like really hard. No, it's it's awful. Um, and they have a weird carve out too that if you uh, if you bake and sell bread on site, you're not eligible. So Panera and like Badalm Bakery are like yeah, what's that all about? Yeah, it's so many weird little carve. <laughs> I don't know, it's really like, stupid, but so I guess like Subway doesn't apply. Oh, okay. But only if you can buy the bread straight up. 
and this is on September 1st. So the question is, yesterday, we're recording September 2nd, could you go into a Subway and just buy bread yesterday? I don't think you can. Wait, wait, you're saying it does or doesn't apply to Subway? If it, it does not apply to any place that bakes the bread on site and sells, and sells the bread to you as just bread, if you ask for it. Oh, I mean, you can theoretically, well, no, it's part of a sandwich, but can you go to Subway? Actually, I'm going to look this up. Can you go to Subway and just ask for a loaf of bread? I don't know. And then the question is, if Subway, also, if, if but, Subway but, but, was wait, smart wait. enough, they would have just ended it yesterday just, you could. They'll just allow that to happen then to dodge Yeah, the... exactly. I don't, I mean, I would love to see if they were, if they knew about this and were scrambling because like, yeah, they could have, it's like this weird loophole. Um, but I mean, that's Sacramento too. Sacramento has so much stupid loopholes, but I'm still very excited. I think this is like a really good model for labor standards. Oh, interesting. So Subway doesn't allow you to do that. Of course, they're going to probably allow you to do that. Well, it had to be on September 1st. So they missed their window if they didn't already. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, it says yep. Subway does not allow you to purchase bread without buying a sandwich as of 2022. Oh. However, one workaround will enable you to purchase just bread if you just ask for a veggie sandwich without the veggies. Well, we'll see. I'd love to see if there's a lawsuit. Not really a lawsuit. about this, but about the uh, veggie-free veggie sandwich. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in general, that's that's my that's my that's my takes on on what's going on in Sacramento. Oh, audience. interesting. No, so yeah, it's they're very clear about this. It's a specific policy. They do not sell bread. Because the worry is that if they do, then people will just go home and make their own sandwiches. Well, they're <laughs> now they're gonna have to pay more in labor, so that's yeah, great. That's, that's, that's an interesting little word. I, I guess it just hits Panera Bread and literally just Panera Bread. Who else does that hit? Donut shops? Well, I, guess? I mean, there's there's the Badal Bakery like shops and all that because they like it's like a weird kind of Panera thing going around town. Okay. I don't I don't know if there's a hundred of those, so maybe that doesn't even matter. I'm really excited for this, though. I'm I'm so glad that we're getting more sectoral bargaining in the United States, and I think fast food is one of the first places to go because we have such a huge labor shortage. And like, I would never encourage somebody to work in retail or food unless they had good labor protections, which the vast majority of the United States doesn't have. The shit that McDonald's workers have to deal with on a regular basis is like crazy, um, because like they have to deal with the entire public. Everyone goes to McDonald's and. It will be really good for them to get like decent wages and like labor bargaining standards. I just can't wait for this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think like we talk about like kind of there's this I think a, a stagnation of like the old model of labor and like now we're seeing Starbucks being unionized or Amazon and like the sectoral bargaining. This is this is really cool. You think Gavin will veto? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I. Th- I don't know if like who's actually the force behind this. I think it's just I, I don't really understand the politics of this so far, but we'll see. I hope I hope he doesn't. Uh, but I also hope that Berkeley, uh, you know, makes sure that they have good labor shops open, uh, good union shops like McDonald's uh, downtown. So let's let's hope they don't get rid of that. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Any, anything else going on? I mean, I guess you're always you're always on your Substack, I and mean, people know where to find you there. Uh, how's your How's your year of Substacking been going? Um, it's been going pretty well. I got another publication coming out in, in a hot minute. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been going pretty well. Cool. Okay. That's all I got for you. I guess, uh, I guess, you know, where to check you out. You know, I do the thinking on Twitter and that will click you there's sub, sub stack. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. We'll call it a day. Cool. All right. Great. Good talking to you. Yep. We've been talking to Daryl Owens all about the 2022 legislative session in Sacramento. A bit of news uh, on Labor Day itself, since we recorded this, uh, Gavin Newsom did sign that, that exciting fast food act, the FAST Act. 
but the rest is still sitting there on his desk, waiting. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of the Henry George program at the website seethecat.org. This presentation of Kids Issue, Stanford 2023-2024.